Would you turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of Zechariah? It's Genesis, Exodus, Zechariah. No, it's not quite that easy, but you'll find it. It's one of the few Z books that you'll find in all the Bible. We're going to be looking in Zechariah chapter 3 this morning. Zechariah chapter 3. I want you to know that the Bible is a wonderful book. It's a 66 books in one compilation. We say repeatedly it was written over a 1,500-year period by 40 different authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is therefore uh, without error from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation. We accept it as the verbal inspired word of God for each of our lives. And I want you to know one thing about the Bible you maybe haven't thought about in a while. And that is that one in four verses in the Bible is a promise. 25% of all the Bible is a promise. And there was a fellow that so wanted to document this. He lived in Canada, if I'm not mistaken. A number of years ago, he decided to sit down and count every promise in the Bible. Now, he had already read the Bible through 27 times. This was written up in the Canadian newspaper, so it's a pretty good track record. I certainly couldn't match that one. But he said, I want to know how many promises there are. And it took him two and a half years to document it. And he came up with the number that there were 7,485 promises from God for us. And there are 31,000 verses in the Bible. So that just about is one in four verses come out to be a promise. And there are times in your life and my life that we will want to be able to hold on to one of the promises of God. It may be when you're going through fear or anxiety or some of the folks I've said hello to this morning that are in the battle of their lives, going through difficult things. And it's times like that that you'll want to know that God's word is not only authoritative and inspired, but that it is what Angela prayed earlier, that it is personal for us, each of us in this setting. For whatever stage of life you're in, some of you are young, just starting out in marriage or in life or in college, and you're wondering, will I be able to make it? you'll want to know that God is there with you. There are two very popular Bible apps that many of us have on our phones now. One is called YouVersion, which is the most looked-up Bible version thing on social media. And then there's another one that's just effectively that good that lets people be able to look up Bible verses. And over the last couple years, they've, they've studied how many things that people look to. The number one verse search engine on, on version was Philippians 4, 6, dealing with anxiety and fear. John 3, 16. Jeremiah 29, 11. Proverbs, uh, uh, Psalms 23 and verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And incidentally, of the top 11 hits of all the verses people look up, verses in Psalm 23 accounted for six of the top 11. I thought that was pretty amazing as you consider that and look at it. But if we know God's promises, they're very important. They give us faith to believe in times of darkness. When there's no light around you, you can just claim a verse from God's word. It gives you strength in the moment of temptation. And sometimes you're just trying to find guidance how to take the next step. Lord, where do I go from here? I seem to be at a crossroads. And then especially strength for a moment of temptation that will remind us that there's no temptation that's common to man, but that is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that that you're able to bear, but will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So today, I'm beginning a brand new series called Big Promises of God. And the thing that we deal with so much that are in all these lookup engines is how do we deal with guilt? 
And so I've called the first message in this series, Goodbye to Guilt. Goodbye, goodbye. And we start with a message that deals with that very thing. So that's why we're looking in Zechariah chapter 3. About two weeks ago, I saw an article in the Associated Press. They carried a story about a man in Colorado who found out that he was dying from an incurable disease. And the headline read this, Dying man admits he killed four in family. And then the text read, naturally it had my attention, said not long after Robert Spangler learned that he was dying of an illness, detectives came knocking at his door. Now listen to this. On the chance he had something he might want to get off his chest before he died. And there was plenty that he wanted to get off his chest. He proceeds to tell them that over the last several years he had killed a couple of his wives and several family members. I wouldn't want to be kin to that guy. But the truth of the matter is there are a whole lot of people, even in churches today, that are caught up in what I would call a guilt trap. And and they're haunted by the ghost of guilt. Maybe it was something that you did recently and you just wonder if God can forgive you. Maybe it was something that happened a long time ago and you've covered it up the best you possibly can. But you do not have peace because of that situation that God keeps bringing back up or the reality of what happened. You know, as Americans, we are very strange people. I remember when I was a little boy and a teenager, everybody talked about how bad the hippie movement was. Dear God, give us hippies again is all I can pray. (laughs) But uh, as Americans, we become strange for this reason. We've decided to get rid of sin. You can't be guilty of something if it isn't any longer. Amen? Do you understand that? And so the best thing to do is rather than uh, correct it, it's just to dissolve it and do away with it. We've relabeled sin. It's now maladjustment or whatever word you want to put in. But we've gotten rid of sin and we've also tried to but not been successful in getting rid of guilt. Because guilt is something, if it's true guilt, that God will place on your heart that only can be dealt with with God. And with that in mind, look with me in Zechariah chapter 3. We're going to look at just three verses this morning. It says in verse 1, Then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord, with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, take off his clothes. And he said, see, I've removed your iniquity from you, and I will, re- I- I will clothe you with festive robes. And I read a verse more than I think was on the screen. Now, there are many truths that are in these very few verses that I want you to see. But uh, as I point a couple of them out to you, I pray that God will reveal them to you in your heart and that this may be a bookmarker that you can have for future reference or a lifesaver if you need it this morning. First of all, there's, and there's three things that I want to point out to you on the back of your worship guide. You can see it. First of all, I want you to see this, the reality that guilt is real, this, the, the stark actuality of guilt. It is not just something that you make up in your mind or is in a book. In, in verse 3, notice you'll find Joshua the high priest. Now, this is not the Joshua that succeeded Moses. This is a high priest Joshua that is involved in the rebuilding of uh, Jerusalem when they come back much later. But he's the high priest, and he's clothed in filthy garments. Now, the entire picture of this chapter that we're looking at is that of a courtroom. 
there's God in his holiness sitting on the supreme court bench, if you will, of the universe, and he's on the throne. And before him is Joshua, and Joshua is in very filthy clothes, which is very unusual because there's one thing about a priest's garment. It is made out of linen, and it is spotlessly white. So for the pastor, the priest, to be before God in this picture and being in these filthy garments is totally not what you would think. And he's filthy. He's the prisoner. He's the accused. And Satan is there. And Satan is at the right side or the left side of the prisoner, and he's serving as the prosecuting attorney. He's accusing Joshua before the throne where God is sitting. And and, uh, he's the adversary. And he's saying on the basis of God and your so-called holiness, you've got to judge this man because of his filth. He's done everything wrong that a priest should never be involved in. And as we look at the picture, it seems as though the prosecuting attorney, Satan, has a good case against Joshua because Joshua is standing beside him. He's supposed to be in white clothing, and he's in filthy clothing, not dirty, not dingy, not dusty, but filthy, the very mire of sin. Whatever that sin is, you can fill it in that would make us dirty and make us black. That's why the old song is so popular, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And here he is standing in that situation. And, and let me assure you that nobody is ever able to deal with their sin until they do what Joshua would have undoubtedly done here and what we have to do, and that is to be willing to admit that we are guilty. I want you to put in your margin a reference. It's not on your outline. I'm going to show it to you on the screen in a minute. It's Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. And here's what Romans 3:19 says. Notice on the screen. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Every mouth stopped. Do you know what Romans 3.19 is saying to us? If you're guilty before God, if there's an unconfessed sin in your life as a believer, the best thing that you can do is to just shut up and plead guilty. There's no reason to debate, well, Lord, my sin was different. Lord, the reason this happened is because of this. Romans 3 is saying that let everyone, every mouth be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. All the world. That's Bible doctrine. But today, in this world, we don't discuss Bible doctrine any longer. We see things that are happening that shock us. We hear things that shock us. But you don't ever hear anyone put it in the context of this is what the Word of God says. Well, the one group of people that should be putting it in that context is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of the Bible becoming just a thought or how you interpret the Bible or however it's laid out, the Bible is our guideline, our plumb line in this world. And, And if you ask the average person what is guilt, you'll get something like this. Guilt is that feeling that you have on the inside when you do something that you know is wrong. But that's really not guilt. That is a guilt feeling. And I want you to catch this part of what I'm going to share with you. A guilt feeling can be legitimate or illegitimate. There are people that feel guilty about things that they shouldn't be guilty about, that they're wrong. Some people feel guilt, and they should feel guilt. I heard the story about a guy that cheated the Internal Revenue Service. I know no one's ever done that. But he cheated the Internal Revenue Service, and it bothered him so bad that he wrote a check and a letter, and he said, Dear IRS, I'm enclosing a check for $12,000. It's been two years. I can't sleep at night. 
And I'm hoping this helps, but if it doesn't, I'll send the rest next month. And, and, and many people try to deal with guilt by probing our conscience. You know, if I, if I try this, will it make me feel better for a while? And, and they simply have the idea that it's your conscience that makes you feel guilty. And therefore, if you deal with your conscience, you'll be all right. Here's the problem with that. Your conscience and my conscience may have two different levels of thermostat operation. Elizabeth Elliot, the famous wife and, and widow of Jim Elliot that reached the Anka Indians, many of you remember that great story, would talk about when she went back there to live, the Indians of that tribe were just totally naked. They went around everywhere, no clothes at all, except a little string that they tied around their waist. And at one point she said, why do you tie the string around your waist, the little tiny string? She said, well, we don't want to be naked. So in their mind, that string provided, consisted, uh, implied that they were clothed in a situation like that. And, and you can't let your conscience be, be your guide unless God's the one that's guiding your conscience. God has to set the thermostat in a situation like that. And sometimes maybe you think you're guilty for something you didn't do. Little children who I've counseled even after they became adults sometimes go around feeling guilty because they were sexually abused as a child. And they feel like, I must have done something wrong to cause this. That is a false guilt. You were a victim in a situation like that. Sometimes kids will go up to the room and cry and uncontrollably believe that mom and dad are going through a divorce because of something that they did or something that they said or because they're even born and interfering with their life of what mom and dad want to do. Those are all things of false guilt. They grow up feeling, feeling dirty. And that's not guilt at all. But that child can't separate that, and sometimes that child can feel guilty. I want to tell you something today, and I'd like you to write it down. It's going to be on the screen in just a moment. moment, It's a very important statement. Would you write this down? Guilt is not a feeling. It is a reality. Guilt is not a feeling. It is a reality. Don't trust your feelings. Dr. James Dobson wrote an incredible book called Emotions, Can You Trust Them?, And in that book, he covers the top 10 emotions that we go through humanly. And in every single case, Dr. Dobson says, don't trust that emotion. Deal with the reality. And the reality is when we know we've transgressed the law of God that brings judgment, not only the the judgment that's to come, but it brings a lot of emotional baggage with it right now in the life we're living and experiencing. And sometimes anxiety can come as a result of guilt. Depression can come as a result of guilt. Uh, The windows of our soul, instead of being clear looking up to God, they're covered with this grime, with this filth that's portrayed for us in Joshua's garments in this situation. And, And what an outlook so many people have to not be able to see clearly God. And as a result of that, it is possible that your physical health can be impacted, your emotional health, your mental health. So many things can happen because of guilt. And there's some of you in this service that today, perhaps, the devil wouldn't want you to hear what I'm going to say because you are personally going through an attack of Satan right now. The devil keeps telling you things like, you're no good. You know what you did. You're a hypocrite. You're in here singing the songs, but you know how you live on Tuesday and live on Thursday. You're guilty. You don't belong here. You're just playing the game. Why don't you quit coming to church? Why don't you stop coming? And I want to tell you, that literally is not a statement. It's what will happen if you stay on that merry-go-round with the devil. 
He will win that battle until you learn to resist the devil and forcing him to flee from you with the power we have, with the word of God and the help of the Holy Spirit who's beside us. And after a while, you'll give up. Because guilt not only has eroded your happiness, it can cloud your outlook of any hope that you have of being the person that God wants you to be. And maybe guilt has so condemned you that today you're the one either in this room or listening by way of live stream that you're ready to quit. You're ready to throw up your arms. You're in a trap. You're in this guilt trap. Well, how do you deal with that guilt if that's a situation that you're in? A great many people try a great many different things. Some people go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and and I want you to know that I respect these men and women that do so incredible things, and my family has benefited from good Christian counseling in the past years, and I'm thankful for that, but you listen to me. There's not one psychologist, there's not one psychiatrist that can deal with your guilt unless they point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing they learned in college. They don't have a little experiment. Their pop psychology, anything they come up with will not work. Now, they can deal with the guilt feeling, but they can't deal with the guilt. And what if you get connected, if you say, well, I don't, my insurance doesn't cover a Christian counselor, so I just go to the one my insurance covers. And many of them are probably very, very good on some things, but no one can deal with sin but the Lord Jesus Christ. Please say amen to that. We have to begin in that process. And you go to them, let's say for a moment that they're not godly. Let's say that they're ungodly. Let's say that they're woke, to use the term currently being spread around in our society today. And and they say, well, the reason you're feeling guilty is because you're trying to go by this antiquated book you call the Bible, and you believe those antiquated rules that you're breaking, and probably the best thing you need to do is break your belief in God so you can be comfortable with the way that you're living. That is why, brothers and sisters, many mainline denominations have given up standing on the Word of God to help people feel good about where they're standing in sin and compromising the Word of God. I don't think hell is hot enough for the people, the leaders in churches that have compromised the Word of God to help people feel good. If every time you come to church, I make you feel good, you need to fire me and get another preacher. And because I need the job, I'm going to scare the hell out of you today. But they'll say things like, listen, uh, you're already incriminated in the sight of God, and you won't feel this way anymore if you'll just leave the church. You won't hear that, but you won't hear it. You won't hear it in public schools that are trying to steal your children away from you in sexual uh, gender identity situations. You won't hear it in the political debates where now, even though Roe v. Wade has been turned over, the battle of our lifetimes is still before us in a situation like this. You're not going to hear it in the marketplace. The only place you're going to hear the Word of God is in a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. And I want to tell you something. When people get right with God, they don't want to go to some church that's telling them the same thing the world was telling them. They want to go to a place where their lives can be changed and they can live a victorious testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what the world is doing. Here's what the psychologist, here's what the counselor is doing when they point you away from the reality of sin. If what you're dealing with is sin, now there are many other things you can be dealing with that these counselors are very good, but it's for them if they say, well, here, here's how you put your hand on the hot stove. It's going to burn real bad, but we've got the solution. We have a sedative for that. 
We have an aspirin for that. I don't want your stinking aspirin. Boy, God likes my sermon. Did you hear that? He said, Frank, just preach up a storm today. But, 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 but you don't need a sedative. You don't need an aspirin. We need forgiveness and we need peace in our heart that can only come from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you sin against God, only God can forgive that sin. If you're dealing with something that is not sin and you feel guilty about it, you should question it. If you've confessed it, if you've asked someone to forgive you and it comes back and haunts you, that's the devil. It's just like here with, with this scripture, an accuser before the brethren, before the Lord. You'd be surprised how many people look for ways to take care of their guilt. If the psychologist doesn't work, they blame someone else for whatever went wrong in their life. It was my mother and father's fault. And I understand, by goodness, that some of you could have had bums for parents, but most of you are so lucky you have no idea to have a mom and dad that labored and worked. Did they get everything right? No, look at you. But, but every, everything, everything they did was to try to inspire you and to raise you. And don't let the devil get you involved in the blame game. Don't blame your husband. Don't blame your wife. It, it's so easy to blame someone else for that. But what we want to do when we feel guilty, another thing, is to affirm ourselves. I am somebody. I, I am really good. Or blame someone else, as I said. Or we say this thing. Well, time will take care of it. Someone told me recently, said, you know, in our, we've learned to just not say anything about it in time. It will all get better, and we'll forget it. Well, what some people call a clear memory is uh, a clear conscience is nothing more than a fuzzy memory. They choose not to think about it and go back there. And that's the way some people try to deal with guilt. And, of course, there are thousands and millions who are dealing with guilt through alcohol and drugs. I can't tell you how many times I've visited a drunk in his room at night where he's mourning over something that happened 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and he's still drinking himself crazy or popping pills crazy trying to deal with something that happened rather than deal with it with God. And the amazing thing is God's ready to deal with those things. But make no mistake, there's an actuality of sin, and guilt is a real thing if it's a God-given guilt. Over and over, the Bible talks about guilt and having to be dealt with by God. The second thing that I want you to see that's so powerful this morning is that you have to know that the enemy wants to accuse you of that guilt before the Lord. It's amazing. Notice in verse 1 of that chapter. It says, then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Now, may I remind you, I know you know this, but the word Satan means adversary. Satan is not your friend. Satan is not a little boogeyman in red pajamas and a pitchfork in his hand. He's your adversary. He's your enemy. And in this scripture, he's pictured as the prosecuting attorney. The prosecuting attorney's job is to prosecute. This person is guilty. And the Bible says in Revelation, and this is not on the screen, but Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Everyone listen to me. Satan is constantly accusing you. I don't care if you've read the Bible 27 times or you've only read two verses in the Bible seven times. Satan, if you're a child of God, is going to do everything he can to make you feel like a sack of sin on a popsicle stick before the Lord. He's going to come after you. And we don't like it when we're being attacked. 
Do you like people talking behind your back? Satan talks behind your back to other people. He'll talk about you to your face. He's an accuser. He's pointing his finger of accusation in your face. Constantly he's accusing you before God and right to your face. That's why the Bible says he's an accuser of the brethren. And he points out your sins. You say, Frank, I don't think Satan would point out my sins. He would want to hide my sins. Oh, no. Satan wants you to sin, and then he wants you to suffer the consequences of that sin. He encourages you, and then he rejoices in the suffering that you experience. Dr. Adrian Rogers, one of my great heroes before he went to heaven, speaking on this verse, said this. Notice, he said, what Satan wants to do is cripple you and then to blame you for limping. (laughs) That's what Satan does. He's the one that encouraged you to sin, but after you sin, he's the one that accuses you. First, he encourages you, do it. Nobody's looking. Go ahead, do it. You can get away with this. It's not such a big a thing. You can do this. And then after you do it, he said, oh, you blew it. You'll never be forgiven. Oh, everyone knows. It's over. Dr. Warren Wiersbe, another giant of the faith, said this. Before you sin, Satan whispers, you can get away with it. You can get away with it. And after you sin, he shouts, you'll never get away with it. And that's just the way he does. He'll encourage you to sin before you sin. And after you sin, he accuses you. He's the adversary. He's the prosecuting attorney. And here's one thing that every blood-washed, born-again follower of God, saint of Jesus Christ, needs to learn is simply this, is the difference between satanic accusation and Holy Spirit conviction. They can feel the same sometimes, but then they really divide at the path. What's the difference between satanic accusation and Holy Spirit conviction? Well, there are a lot of people who don't know the difference, and some of you may be in this room this very morning. You're under the accusation of Satan, and you think you're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You're not aware of the difference. Here's the difference. Satan is the adversary. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. Satan is always in the attack mode. Satan says you can never be forgiven. And the Bible says if we we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And some of you say this to me, Pastor, I've asked God a thousand times to forgive me of that sin. Well, therein lies the problem. You've asked 999 times too many. You just have to ask one time. You confess it. You give it to him. It's under the blood of Jesus Christ. It will never be brought up against you again. But as long as you live, Satan's going to remind you what you did when you were 17, 20, last month, how you conducted yourself in a situation. And you have to learn. I told you about this precious little lady I had in my first church in Amish country named Mrs. Purdy. She weighed about 90 pounds soaking wet, and she'd call the devil out by name. She'd get him, she'd say, the devil's no good. The devil's no good. And she'd teach the little boys in her fourth grade class. She said, you tell the devil to go to hell and leave you alone. And guys, we need to learn to know the difference between an adversarial attack and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Satan accuses you to drive you to despair. And the Holy Spirit convicts you to draw you to Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference? Despair, giving up, moving forward. You say, Frank, I don't get the difference. Wake up. Great example of that would be in the Bible. At the end of Jesus' life, two individuals, Simon Peter and Judas Iscariot. Judas betrayed Jesus. Simon Peter denied Jesus Christ. However, Judas really never knew Jesus, and Peter did. And if you're here today and you really do know Jesus Christ, and Satan is continually attacking you, you can deal with that this morning. 
It was Judas who sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Do you remember this? And he was so guilt-ridden with that thing, so filled with remorse, that he took those 30 pieces of silver, flung it down on the ground, and he went out with very trembling fingers. He made a noose. He went up on a cliff, and he flung himself down in the hell that was before him to try to escape the hell that was within him. And there's no escape that way. Peter, on the other hand, denied Jesus Christ three times. And the Bible said he too went out and wept bitterly because of the sin that was there. But he didn't end up as a suicide. He ended up as a mighty apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ that gave the great sermon on Pentecost Sunday, a man of God. There's a difference between accusation and conviction. Peter was under conviction. Judas was under accusation, and we need to know the difference. And we have to understand that the guilt is real and that Satan is a liar. And and, and you'll want to make sure that it's not the devil who's accusing you when you feel like you're not worthy. As a child of God, you are worthy. There are no second-class citizens. You say, well, why do I feel bad? It's not because you're sinlessly perfect. It is because maybe that when we do fall short, and it, come on, it's just us. We're not even on television. How many have messed up since you've been a Christian? Raise your hand. Whew, the wind is knocking me over so strong. You know, each of us. And, and when that happens, the thing to do is don't wait till Sunday morning to deal with it. If it happens on a Monday, you deal with it on a Monday. If you're in your car, if you, the Lord really convicts you, you pull that sucker over on the side of the road, put on your emergency flashers. If a cop pulls up, say, I have an emergency. I'm getting this thing right with God. Satan is not going to steal my sleep another night. And you're going to get that thing right. If it's on a Wednesday prayer meeting, to, wherever you're at, whenever it takes place, you give it to God. And let me give you a, a verse of scripture. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this. This is a great verse. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. Godly grief, that's what Simon Peter had. It worked repentance. He wept bitterly. The grief of sorrow of this world, on the other hand, produces death. And that's what Judas had. He never knew how to get out of the guilt trap. He committed suicide. And I want you to hear this. I think Satan helped him along every step of the way. I was, shouldn't have been, but I was reading stories of famous actors and athletes who in recent years have committed suicide. And I I thought, what brought them to that point? That they thought they had everything. They had the talents. They had the health. They had the, 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 the monetary resources. And yet they reached that point of giving up. And though there may be some times you say, well, you know, they they were struggling with this. Trust me, nothing more would Satan enjoy than to steal, kill, and destroy. That's why Jesus said in John 10, and why it's never God's will for someone to take their life. The Bible said, Jesus said, I've come to give you life. And it might be a more abundant life. And I know life can be hard and life can be difficult. But I promise you, there are untold millions of believers that can tell you that every step of the way, Jesus Christ will help you. One day at a time, one step at a time. So there's the stark actuality of guilt. There's the satanic accusation. But here's the best part, so you'll love me again, all right? And that is, we have a Savior. And he's our advocate. And that's the Savior's advocacy for our guilt. Look, if you will, again in verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. 
May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man, speaking of Joshua, a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now here's the courtroom again. God is the judge. There's Satan, the adversary, who's resisting him and accusing him. But then the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Look at it again. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Who are they speaking of? Well, he prefigures the person, Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ rebuke you. Put this verse in your Bible, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. It's on the screen. It says, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. <laughs> People say, well, the Lord doesn't care if we sin. We've got greasy grace and we can live any way we want to. Jesus Christ came to this earth because of sin. It is never God's will that you have to sin. I know we have sinned, I know we can sin, and we probably will sin, but it is not the norm, it is not what God wants, and it is not God's will for us to sin. It says, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, but I'm so glad for the fire escape verse. This is the rest of it. But, oh, I love the word but, but, circle it, underline it, cut it out of your scripture and hold on to it, but... If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You know, God's, God, God's forgiveness is not an encouragement to sin. God's not just saying, just sin and it doesn't make any difference. No, these things I write to you that you sin not. But the rest of the verse says, but if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Did you hear that? If we sin, we, speaking to believers, those of you that raised your hands, but if we sin, we have an, a court advocate with the Father. You have an adversary that's against you, but you have an advocate that's representing you. The adversary is Satan. The advocate is Jesus. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He is the propitiation. That word means he is the satisfaction. God says, I'm satisfied with the payment that Jesus made in your life in this situation. And not only for our sin, but the good news is for the sin of the whole world. And that's why we have 11,000 missionaries serving around the globe right now, telling the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to people. Listen to what I'm going to say. I don't care who you are. I have the greatest news for you this morning if you'll receive it. And that is that there's someone who is pleading your case before God. And his name is Jesus Christ. You have a defense attorney. And you're guilty, but he's you're guilty. This, this, Joshua was guilty. His, his clothes were dirty. A priest should not be wearing dirty clothes, filthy clothes. They weren't dirty. They were filthy clothes. But he had a representative. And the representative said, Holy Father, what the adversary has said may be true. But Holy Father, these sins have been atoned for. They've been paid for. And I present as evidence of that the nail scars in my hand. I present that, the bloody crown on my head. I shed my blood. I'm Frank's advocate. I died for that cause. And do you know what the finished work of Calvary is? I mean, just listen to the hammering on the cross. The, hands go, the nails going in Jesus' hands, the spear going in his side, the blood coursing down his cheeks. And the good news when you read that is that you can rejoice, my friend, because on that cross he bowed his head and he said, It is finished and that meant that is paid in full the finished work but do you know there's an unfinished work that Jesus had after he left the cross did you ever think about that 
When he left the cross and came up out of that grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father, Hebrews 7.25 says, He ever lives to make intercession for the saints. He ever lives to make intercession for. That word intercession and for means on our behalf. For the saints. Those of you who maybe even as a child or a teenager, as an adult, have trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. He, he, he knows your frailty. He knows your frame, the Bible says. And he makes intercession for you on your behalf before the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the basis of the finished work is his unfinished work. And, and, and in the Lord, we have a high priest in heaven. That's why on a regular basis, you should run to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus Christ, you are my strength. You're my hope. But if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And when the adversary says you're guilty, Jesus says, but for those sins, I died. One last verse. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. From, the, from all unrighteousness. On what basis does he do that? Is it arbitrary? No, it's not arbitrary. In verse 3, in verse 2 of Zechariah, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And, and on what basis is Satan rebuked? Don't miss this. He's based on the fact even the Lord who hath chosen Jerusalem. And it says, is not Joshua a brand plucked from the fire? You know what it's referring to there? The redeemed of the Lord. We're the brand plucked from the fire. We're saved. We're the elect. We're the call of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me flesh it out one last time. In, in Romans 8.33, it says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? That's God's chosen. That's you and that's me. It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who is doing what? Making intercession for us. Paul is saying the same thing that Zechariah is saying. And he's saying, who shall lay anything to the charge of them? And so he rebukes Satan. Joshua is restored. Joshua was given a change of clothing. And that's God's righteousness for filthiness. And I want you to know that that same thing is here for you today. Don't you be haunted by the ghost of guilt. Today's the day to say goodbye to guilt. But you must deal with that guilt. You can't put it off. You can't blame it. You can't pay someone to take it away from you. Zechariah doesn't tell us this, but the Apostle John does. For that guilt to go away, we must confess our sins. We must be willing to humble our hearts. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, no one becomes a Christian by attending church. It doesn't happen after a two-year certificate. It's not like going to a meeting where you get a pen after so long. It is a crisis experience that happens in a moment of time where you willfully accept what Jesus Christ did on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin. And as a believer and a service just like this, where you know there's something while I'm speaking on the outside, the Holy Spirit is speaking on the inside of that thing that he's laid on your heart that you're willing to deal with it. And, you know, there's, there's a verse in James that says we're to confess our faults one to another, and I'm not suggesting we're going to go around and do that. But one of the benefits of having a time where we can come together and pray and deal with sin is that we are making a public statement that I am not going to let this thing have control or victory in my life. And so in just a moment, we're going to sing the song, Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone. 
And from the bottom of my heart all week, I've just been praying that you would have the courage and the strength. If Satan is attacking you, he's laughing at you. He's telling you, just hold on to this thing. You know, you're shacked up. You're living with someone you're not married to. You are involved in alcohol or drugs or in a deviant behavior of some kind. And the world will tell you that's all okay. But I want to tell you this one. On the inside of your heart, deep down, the Lord Jesus Christ is calling you and speaking to you. And the only way you're going to see a change is if you'll take the first step. If you'll take the first step, I promise you the Lord will help you every step of the way down to this altar. This morning, you can kneel and you can pray and you can see great success in that situation.